It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio Program, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those of us in the education community and beyond on the important education issues of the day, a conversation that brings the state leaders and state educational leaders to you, and I hope that you all feel free to join us in the conversation. My name is Ray Penny. I will be your host this afternoon. Today, we will not only be taking your calls, but we also have our chat room open. I think this gives you another vehicle in which to participate in the program. Uh, Kurt will be taking the calls and screening the calls. Kurt, can you please explain the process? Thanks, Ray. To call in, dial 1-347-989-8904. When you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, press 1. That will indicate on my switchboard that you are ready to ask a question. I'll get your name and your question or topic. Also, if you're on the phone line, I will ask you to turn down the volume on your computer and only listen on the phone since there will be a delay and it is confusing. If you are just listening on your computer, we do have a chat room feature that you can log on to. We will be monitoring the chat room and we'll pass on some of the comments or questions on to our speaker. To log on to the chat room, you will need to register with Blog Talk Radio. Thanks, Kurt. In education for years, we've been trying to close the achievement gap, whether it's in just in New Jersey or nationwide. And it has been a sad reality, but in many cases, the zip code has affected the educational uh, outcomes that a student receives. Educating our poor students, particularly in areas with the high poverty concentrations of poverty, has proved very elusive in most cities, in most uh, uh, districts. Yet in one New Jersey city, it appears a school district has found a way to improve student achievement. District is Union City. It is a former Abbott district that is located in Hudson County, very densely populated with an extremely high number of students who do not speak English. Yet, the, despite these demographic issues, the school district is achieving, albeit it has been a slow but a very steady climb. The academic achievement has been impressive enough to have a book in, on them called Improbable Scholars, The Rebirth of a Great American School System and the Strategy for America's Schools. Today, I'm extremely pleased to have with us David Kirk, the author of the book. David is a public policy professor at Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California. Welcome, David. It's good to be here, Ray. Thank you. All right. Well, I said you were from the University of California. How does a person from the University of California end up in Union City studying the school system? Well, I've heard a lot about the early education program in Union City, and when I was writing my previous book, Kids First, um, I visited and was very impressed. And while there, um, I went and looked at, at K-8 classrooms and just dropped into those classrooms and really was, you know, was free to go wherever I wanted to go. Uh, and what I saw I thought was very impressive. It's not a whole lot of rote recitation, not a lot of memorization, but lots of hands-on work with good, solid teachers and some fabulous teachers. And um, I decided I wanted to find out what made the system work because... 
Now, here was a place in which what I knew at the time was that the test scores on the reading and math tests um, approximated the New Jersey statewide average. That was pretty remarkable given the kind of place you described. So um, I arranged to spend a year there, um, thanks to the superintendent, Sammy Sanger, um, and um, the members of the school board, um, was able to basically go where I wanted to, from spending time in a third-grade classroom with immigrant kids learning English while they prepared for that first big test, all the way through that school and other schools and uh, school administration, hanging out with, uh, with the top leaders in the system, um, and then looking at the, the politics of, the, of what is a really very interesting community. Yeah, so that was that, that was that was the Union City experience. I really loved the time that I spent there. Um, I've actually written another book about New Jersey, about the Mount Laurel days, um, called Our Town. So I don't know, maybe I have a thing for New Jersey. <laughs> well, we like it, um, and uh, uh, I have to say, I, I for those listening, I did read the book, and uh, usually there's a it's always a litany of studies and what works and might work looking at this results. And I did like your your observations of the teachers and the students and the administrators because it kind of, I guess, put into uh, real life what, how difficult it is to educate some of the children uh, with some of the backgrounds they come. Um, it's not an easy task, and I, I think you said it. You saw some great teachers, but let's talk about Room 201 where you, you, you kind of started, and I think there was a great teacher. Um what it was it about? Let me, let, me, let, me just, let me just in, let me just interrupt for a sec, just to, sure. you know, I think it's worth saying that although I'm a you know I'm a policy professor, I don't write like a policy professor. Um, the prose is is really accessible. Um, these are these are stories that come to a larger policy point. I mean, there are strategies that emerge, but but the book, I hope, um, is a good read, and I would offer all of you a deal. If you buy the book and don't like it, I'll buy it back from you. Um, <laughs> but. I'm happy to talk about Room 210, um, where I spent a fair chunk of my uh, of my time. Um, here, as I said, you had kids, um, most of whom had come to this country, you know, a year or two ago. So they were still learning English. Um, they were sharpening their skills in Spanish because Union City, you know, believes what the what the folks in in linguistics tell them that it's really important to have mastery of one's home language before proceeding on to English and. Besides, being bilingual is a huge advantage in this society. So mm-hmm. there are these kids learning the language, learning the subjects, um, being grouped at small tables uh, that change from subject to subject based both on how well they're doing academically and where they are in terms of language, uh, with lots of small group projects that the kids would, uh, would spend some time working on their own. Um, and, a, and a teacher who's just fabulous, very high energy, very smart, she describes herself on day one to these kids as dulce y duro, which means sweet and hard, um, and lived up to that. Um, and she described the class as a pie, un pie in, in Spanglish, as she would, as she would say, um, where the class was really a community. The, the individuals were different. You know, there was pepperoni slice, and there's the mushroom slice, and there's the everything slice. The kids are different, but the pie together, and that's a wonderful metaphor for for building a community out of a bunch of, of disparate and sometimes rambunctious individuals. And there were a couple of things, uh, at least I took from the the, te- uh, the quality of the teachers that you saw uh, and what makes a good teacher. Uh, is it true to say that the collaboration is not an individual effort? It was particularly uh, in Room 210 in the George Washington School. Uh, you called it the – they were called the dream team. Uh, did that make the – 
the do the other teachers make each other better? Absolutely. I mean, we know this from the from the research that that teachers learn a lot on the job. I mean, they get a they get an education and then they come out into the world and they help each other out. And we you know we know how much it is that each one brings to the other, how they complement each other's strengths, how they're able to to mentor each other. The more the more experienced teachers mentoring the newbies in that world. Um, and forming a community, um, as opposed to being, you know, what I what I call in the book the Queen Victoria syndrome, the monarch isolated in your classroom, um, really is key to the success of that place. And I, I was also taking, uh, and we'll get to this when we talk about it, a lot of the the leaders, the, the educators in Union City, they really were not. They came from the community for the most part. I don't think there were, you had too many that went to Ivy League schools or, or anything of that sort. They seemed to be people that went to Montclair State, Kane, and Jersey City University. Uh, they're homies. They really are. They they grew up around Union City. They went to school nearby, as you say. They came back. I don't. Most of them never lived more than an hour's drive uh, from Union City, and I think that's. That's important for a couple of respects. For, you know, for one reason, there's all this talk about how we need teachers with fancy credentials um, and Ivy League educations and the like. And, and here you see great teaching from people who really, you know, are, are very much of the community. And that's a, that's also an important asset because they think of the kids as their kids, um, and you know, they understand them, they know them, they've been them in some cases. They've been the same kind of kids that we're talking about. Immigrant kids from from Latin America who came as as youngsters, so they appreciate who these kids are, what they need, the kind of support they need, both academic support and personal support, um, and they provide it in uh, in boatloads. Uh, I'm going to switch topics just slightly because you, you mentioned it before, and I didn't want to really forget it. Because I, I think it is another uh, – one of the keys of Union City is they were one of the first districts in New Jersey to really go uh, into early education and preschool, uh, and I'll say high-quality preschool. Could you talk a little bit about it because uh, they emphasized it? And, uh, they, the really did, they really did. I mean back in 1998-99 when the um, state court decision required the state to fund high-quality early education for three- and four-year-olds in New Jersey – for the, for the urban districts in New Jersey. There are any number of superintendents who thought, oh, this was just kind of babysitting. They didn't want to take it very seriously. But Union City jumped in, um, and about a third of the students there go to the school district's own preschools, and they're great. I mean, the, the hospice center is as good as any preschool is going to be in the country. But what the amazing thing is that they really have improve the quality of, of preschools that once upon a time have just been babysitting centers, in fact. Um, they've used master teachers to, to up the game of the folks in those schools. Um, and you're getting to a point where if you're in any preschool classroom, you don't know what the sign on the door of the building says, whether it's the, you know, the hospice preschool or the, you know, the preschool in St. Augustine's Church or it's the Bidawee you know, nursery school, preschool. Um, the quality is is approaching parity across the system. Um, there are thirty some preschools, so that's a pretty remarkable feat. And there, you know, as with every aspect of the system, it doesn't it doesn't happen overnight, and there's no guarantee that it will continue. They keep at it. They keep working to improve every aspect of that program, and that's certainly true of the preschools. I I watched 
um, some of these preschools go from problematic to, to pretty good and on their way to being very good, um, really through that kind of constant attention and help um, that the district provides them. And uh, I, that, I think that theme runs throughout the district, not just in the preschool. Uh, I think they took that approach to wherever they wanted to improve, whether it was the high school, whether it was third or fourth grade, whether it was math. Uh, and obviously, in preschool, I think you do you spell it out pretty good in the book. At least I got that impression. Um, we're speaking with David Kirp, author of the book Improbable Scholars. It's a look at uh, the Union City School District in New Jersey, uh, a book I recommend that we all read. Um, Sandy, let's talk. I mean, not Sandy. I'm, I'm looking at his name, uh, David. Let's talk about le school leadership, though, um, because yes, you saw some great teachers, uh, but um, even there were some teachers that needed coaxing. Uh, just uh, so you need to have principals and instructional leaders and a central administrators to, to do that. Uh, we'll, stop with, we'll start with the superintendent because he's been there for a while. That Actually, if, if I'm correct, there's only been two superintendents in 25 years, right? Yeah. Let's just to back up a second. Everything starts with a good teacher and an engaged student in a challenging curriculum. And every aspect mm -hmm. of the system needs to be built out from that. And if you, in order to get that, you need a system, and school systems or school districts, you know, tend to be loose confederacies, uh, with each school sort of going its own way, and not a great deal of leadership, and not a great deal of common standard setting or common expectation, uh, and that's a recipe for mediocrity. In in Union City, there has been, as you say, very consistent leadership, um, and it emerges in the late 1980s um, out of necessity. The state is poised to take over the Union City schools. They were so terrible. The students' performance was second worst in the state. Um, though, you know, only Camden was uh, was below them on that um, on that list. And so, they needed to reinvent themselves, um, and that meant developing a really strong um, language program where the kids are really soaked in words. They're reading a lot. They're reading fiction. They're reading nonfiction. They're they're doing the kind of phonics that leads them to understand that the P and pepper and the P and pimiento are the, are the same. Um, they're writing every day. Uh, and as I said, there's a very finely granulated bilingual program which the kids are gradually improving in their home language and gradually transitioning to English. And you, this is a very individualized process. So it's not like a bunch of kids are they're in the bilingual class one year and then they're dumped into a regular class. It's a much more gradual step-by-step -step process that's really necessary to assure that these kids fully grasp both languages. And and what the superintendent does is to hold this system together. I mean, the superintendent um, and the assistant superintendent for academics, Silvio Bato, they really are really the, the glue in a way. They're the folks who are meeting twice a year, what are called face-to-face -face meetings at each school, to look at where they've been since the last meeting, what they're doing now, you know, what the successes are, what the problems are, and what the next steps look like. Um, and this keeps these schools on the same page. They're using a common curriculum, which is developed by teachers in the district, uh, not by outsiders. They're making very good use of assessments, including homegrown assessments as well as the state assessments. Um, as you mentioned, they're supporting teachers in a, in a host of ways. They're making decisions as to which school needs what kind of support. So they have managed 
um, bit by bit to construct the system, and it's it's been a long haul, and things have gotten consistently better from that time. But it's important to realize this is not one of these overnight miracle cures. Yeah, it seems like it now, but it's taken. 20-something years to gradually improve. Uh, I was also struck by one thing, and I'm reading the book, Good. Or I just finished the book, Good to Great. Uh, and the superintendent, uh, and a lot of times school districts um, look for a charismatic, flashy leader, um, uh, someone from the outside. And I'm struck that the superintendent is a lifer to Union City, uh, uh, Stanley, or they usually call him Sandy uh, Sanger. Um, and he's kind of a low-key person, but uh, very determined. Is that a good characterization that he's not one of those flashy uh, people? No, he's a, he's an organization man in the best sense of the, of the word. I mean, flash, you know, it's, it's the organization that makes the people. You know, that's one of the things that you learn from studies of these enterprises, building a structure in which nobody is indispensable. Sandy has built on the work of his predecessor, um, and there's you know this the whole notion of the schools marching to a common drummer, the notion of heavy reliance on assessments, the kind of standards that are available to the teachers uh, and the and the uh, school principals in terms of you know what it takes to do a to do a good job. These are all refinements that have been developed. The high school high schools are the toughest parts of any school system to reform. Mm-hmm. I would say it's not until the last couple of years that the district really got a full grasp on that high school. And that's because of another another lifer, a guy named John Benetti, you know, who grew up, you know, next door, um, in Hoboken and went to school at Rutgers and came back and, and you know, has taught and been an administrator and a troubleshooter and has has really built his building and I think is a culture of high expectations in that high school. We haven't mentioned the, the sort of stand up and pay attention fact yet, I don't think, which is ninety percent of these kids, ninety percent go to graduate. Um, that's better than the statewide average, let alone the national average. Seventy five percent of them start um college. And they're not done. I mean that's a very impressive record. They went they went from being a level five school in need of improvement to escaping from any of that state. So they they've improved enough. In one year, they went from level five to being freed from that kind of review. I don't know any other high school in the country that's managed to pull that off. And they realize they, you know, the senior administrators, the folks in the central office, Sandy and Sylvia, you know, and John, the principal, and the teachers in the school, they're not done. They know that they're not done. And, and they're pushing to require all the students in the school to take the preliminary SAT exam. Um, that's the exam the kids who are going to college need to take, and it sets a very strong signal, you know, that all of these kids, you know, if they really want to work hard, um, they'll get the help they need from the school system to make it. We're speaking with David Kurt, author of Improbable Scholars. If you want to ask a question, dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press one, and we'll get your question. Um, I'm also struck that uh, there was a change at the district level when they looked at administrators to shifting them more from the building manager uh, to instructional leaders and teaching coaches or at least having someone in the administration at the building level or at Central who is working with teachers on coaching. Is that correct? It is, and it's a tough job, as are all of these jobs. So 
calling a principal an, an, an instructional leader is sort of, as we know, it's the language of the day. And it's, it's what you want a principal to be able to do is to work with the teachers to motivate them, to help them, to provide the kind of support that they need, not just to be the paper pushers and the, the person who makes sure that all the kids are out of the building. But that's hard because the state of New Jersey and the federal government impose so many paperwork requirements. And to see the, the amount of paper shuffling that goes on in those districts, that you can be lost in that. You can spend your entire life just filling out forms. So what's impressive is to see how in the system the top administrators have been able to, to free themselves from this, to carve out chunks of time so they can sit in on classrooms, observe, talk with teachers, uh, participate in meetings of you know, grade level teams or subject matter teams that they can get in, engaged in that in that process, and that also is a work in progress. Because I mean, many principals grew up in a system where that wasn't the expectation, and they've been learning on the job. Um, now, the folks who are in place um, are, and I've visited a good number of schools, are almost without exception really doing a fine job with that. Uh, I was uh, also struck as I. Uh, was reading through the book. Um, you have a, a chapter where you said where fun comes to die, and um, yeah. you see some uh, in room two ten. You see great teaching going on, uh, great learning going on, an engaged class. But then there's the pressure of the test. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have state standardized tests. Cause it, it was one of the initiators of uh, Union City, probably trying to improve. But it seemed like that the teaching changed dramatically uh, before the standardized test. Um, is that a good or a bad thing? Well, um, if you go back, um, you know, to the to the era before No Child Left Behind, and it's No Child Left Behind that drives the process you're describing, um, where there's very little assessment. Um, the concern was what uh, George Bush, in the best line ever ever written for him, uh, called the soft bigotry of low expectations. Kind of like you can't expect any more from these kids. So the fact that these kids are assessed and that there is some accountability um, built in for their performance um, and that, there's a, that there is a way of knowing how well kids are progressing, that's all great. But the problem is, and this is where fun comes to die, you know, shows up in the scene. The, the trouble is we have gone from one end to the other. We've gone from ignoring assessment to, to fetishizing assessment. And if you look in the classrooms, not just in Union, not just in Room 210, not just in Union City, but in any New Jersey school district. If you if you go to a class in March um, or April, it's a pretty dismal place because those students are heavily prepping for this exam and they're learning exam taking skills. I'm not sure that you know teaching seven and eight year olds, uh, you know how it is that you that you sort of choose among the the options that are there in terms of, you know, skip this question and go back to this and all those kinds of tools that, you know, that are great sort of down the road. But, you know, is this really the education that we want to be offering? We've shrunk down in so many ways what it is that schools do. We've shrunk it down to, to match the things that are tested. So there's all this focus on math and all this focus on, on reading. Pivotal subjects and, and very important that kids have mastered reading by the end of third grade. We know the data how closely you can tie success in reading at that point to graduation from high school. But, you know, history and science and art and music, 
you know, an hour a week of, of physical education in the school, that's craziness. All of that gets pushed aside increasingly as the year goes on. And statewide and nationwide, the the more the schools are educating poor kids, the more heavy the dose of this kind of skill and kill um, instruction, drill and kill instruction in reading and math goes on. And it really drains the joy out of education. When I watch the teachers in Washington School, which is the elementary school that mm-hmm. I was at, when I watched them teaching, the good teachers would conduct this this interesting dance, you know, where they would they knew that they had to get the kids ready for the test. They also knew that they had to keep the the interest in learning and the excitement about learning in the mix. So the teacher had to find ways of smuggling in some of the fun, exciting, creative cross subjects, cross curriculum topics. Had to sneak in the 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 visit to some great site that they could talk about some, you know, the colonial house where they could actually tie this into their reading. And there'd be a break from what it was that they were, that they were doing. And that's a, it's a very hard dance to perform. And, you know, we've asked, we have really inflicted too much on these kids, on these teachers, and asking them to spend so much time on this. So we now have common core standards. Um, and they have come into play. Um, and, um, it's a very interesting moment in terms of how you rethink assessments. The Common Core Standards make a lot of sense for many states. I mean, New Jersey has always been pretty high expectations in terms of what it's asked students to do. But it really, this because you have a test instrument that, that really asks a, a common curriculum standards, but asks students to think about things, to solve problems, to work together, um, to do the kinds of things that you really want students to do when they when they graduate from school, the trick is not to build an assessment system that is so demanding that it becomes no child left behind on, on steroids, that every subject every year from preschool on becomes a high-stakes test. That would be a disaster. So this is really a good time for people to be thinking about and for the and for the state for Washington to be thinking about how can we devise assessments that are useful to the kids and useful to the teachers and don't become the tail that wags the dog. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very important moment. As you may know, um, New York last month was administering um, tests based on the new Common Core Standards. Um, the teachers complained they weren't prepared for this, the students weren't prepared for this. And most interestingly, a number of parents across the state told their kids not to take the test as a protest against this kind of hyper-testing. So I'm hoping that we don't once again, we don't sort of um, take this, we don't miss this opportunity to rethink, you know, what it was we want our kids to know and how we want to figure out what they do know. Hmm. Um, Union City is in Hudson County, and Hudson County is uh, in, in New Jersey. I'm not sure if you know this in California, but it's famous for its politics. Uh, oh, yeah. but, well, yes, and, yes, indeed. Voss Hague's reputation made it across the country. Um, okay. And, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, although he's gone, the, the, uh, the, the politics, as we all know, continues. And they, but in, in this case, in reading your book and, and observing Union City, uh, uh, they have a mayor and a state senator in one person, Brian Stack, and but it seems to have added to the stability of the district, which is not always true with the mayorly controlled school district. Uh, 
Uh, is that is that fair to say that? Uh, it is. It is, and I think here the point you just made at the end is important. That Union City is a mayorly controlled district has indeed contributed to the stability of the place. Brian Strack, Stack is a great supporter of education, is a great believer in education. You know, when you'll hear him at, at all the community meetings he's doing and lots of the individual sessions he has with, with uh, people who live in, in his district, talking about the importance of preschool, the importance of keeping kids in school, the importance of going to college. Um, and he's he is very confident that he's got good leadership in that system. And so you have a mayor. You have, it's a very interesting story. So there's Brian Stack, third-generation Irish-American mayor, whose Spanish basically is limited to gracias and buenos dias and a kind of broad local accent. Uh, in a 90% Latino district, he polls 90-plus percent of the vote. Um, and he does that because he works harder at that job than any bit of it I know. I mean, um, he's, he's when there were the great snowstorms of a year ago, he and his assistant were out there on the snowplows for more than a day straight. Uh, they didn't just call in the snowplows. They were driving the snowplows. And, you know, when... My favorite Brian Stack story involved me heading around town with his his assistant Mark Albius, and and it's a very very crowded city as you said in the in the outset. And so when there's a fire in one building, it's going to scorch another building. And I could see this, and I asked Brian, you know, I said I I know because I knew by this time I knew Brian Stack well enough. I know that he's got the the fire alarm installed in his apartment, and he'll go out when there's whenever there's a fire. But I said jokingly, he doesn't actually go into the buildings and try rescuing people. And it turns out that he's been treated several times for smoke inhalation because he has gone into the buildings and rescued people. You know, this is, you know, I don't know, Corey Bucker, Bucker does the same thing. Maybe this is a northern New Jersey specialty that he's <laughs> running into the buildings and, and rescuing folks. But he has been he has been phenomenal. But who knows who the next mayor is going to be and, and what his or her relationship to that school system is. There's, there's a little bit of evidence that says school districts are, are better off uh, under mayoral control than they are with regular elected boards. But it's very modest, and and it's always the case that circumstances alter, you know, rules of, of this kind. But what isn't negotiable, what is crucial, is stability. And you pointed that out earlier in noting that there have been two superintendents in 25 years. That's a very long run. That, I, I don't know many districts that have that. I'll be honest with you, and I don't, I don't mean just urban districts. I mean all the no, districts. No, it's, a, it's it's remarkable. Um, and Sandy, you know, there's no signs that he's retiring. And you know, I know um, who the next superintendent is. They know who the next superintendent is. He's already in place, um, and he'll carry on this, you know, this great this great tradition. You don't need to have that kind of stuff. That's wonderful. But the, the typical story in an urban school district, and I haven't looked closely at New Jersey, but I do know, I do know something about a place like Camden, which is you know has been through superintendent after superintendent. You can't do anything. You can't accomplish anything. I don't care how good you are. If you're in and out of there in three years, which is the typical tenure of an urban school superintendent in America, nothing is going to happen. That kind of churn is the enemy of reform. And you know it's often the case that a superintendent shows up. Um, and he gets hired by the board because he sounds like he's going to, you know, produce the miracle cure. The miracle cure doesn't happen because, you know, it's it's like the Bernie Madoff story. If it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. 
And then two or three years down the road, um, some insurgents run for the school board. You know, they're campaigning to get out the bums. And they get elected, and out goes that superintendent, and in comes a new miracle worker. Well, it doesn't work. I mean, that mm-hmm. much we do know. You can, you can negotiate, you know, you can vary what it is that you're doing in many of the particulars, but if you're going to build a solid, solid system of supports from preschool through high school, it takes patience. It takes slow, continuous improvement, and it takes steady leadership to make that happen. Uh, and I would say, uh, because and I think that the other thing I got from the book is that the the district makes a concerted effort, and it's not easy, but to work work with the parents as best they can and get them involved in the in the school district too. Which... Oh, it's crucial, and that's that's a crucial part of the story. And back in in the 1980s, lots of the parents, lots of the Latino parents, so. You know, unwanted, very simply, everything was done in English, and if you don't speak English, there's a pretty clear signal, we don't want you. And now, there's so much effort on the part of the community liaisons to connect the parents with the schools, and that means, I mean, this again, because these parents are poor, they maybe, they can't afford the school uniform, so, you know, there's a, a kitty that the, you know, the, the liaison person can use to, to pay for this, or... They need help in, in getting a green card or getting a GED or getting on the public housing list. These are all the kinds of supports that, that, that can be provided by the school, and in turn, the parents get enlisted in helping in their kids' education. And I don't care how little education the parents have, and that's what the school system says as well. There are things, many things, that the parents can do to make sure that their kids are on track. Um, they can get the kids to read to them. They can check off their homework. There was one wonderful story where, you know, parents said, but I don't have any time to do this. And, of course, poor parents don't have a lot of time to do this. But the the teacher said, so when do you actually see your daughter? And she said, well, I pick her up from school, and then we go on the bus, and I, I take the bus home and drop her off, and then I go to work. And so the teacher said, well, great. You know, let her read to you while she's on the school bus. You figure out ways of connecting parents. And, on parents' night in the school that I was at, which is one of the poorest schools in this poor town, it was raining so heavily, raining buckets, but I thought nobody is going to show up for parents' night. I bet you 85 or 90% of those kids were had a, a mom, a dad, you know, an aunt, a, a grandma, a grandpa, a, a friend there to, to learn what the school was about and to go talk to the teachers. And that's a, that's a record. A 90% turnout? I suspect that most districts in the state would be really delighted to to come close to that, and not just the urban districts. Uh, I would agree with that. Uh, all right, is this just Union City, though? I mean, I was struck in your uh, your last chapter about what Union City can teach America, and your first sentence is, "What works there can't work here." We're different because and then you fill in the blank, and that's what a skeptic might say. In fact, I was talking to someone about Union City, and they said, "Well, there must be a reason it only works there." Uh, which they were trying to fill in the blank, even though they weren't in the school district. No, uh, this is this is a very common. You know, when I finished the Union City story, you know, I finished, you know, spending my year there and you know, taking my thousand pages worth of of type notes and and crafting a, a this sort of narrative of slow, uh, powerful success. I thought, what are people going to say? They're going to say it's not a big place, 80, 85,000 people in the district. Um, it's well-funded. Well, that's in New Jersey. All, you, all your districts are well-funded. That's not an issue. Um, it's got mayoral control. You know, it's, it's got um, 
you know, this sort of this sort of steady as they go, you know, sort of pattern. And it's just it's just different. It's not like us. And so I went looking across the country at school districts, big, big little, you know, well-funded, badly funded, mostly Latino, mostly African-American, a mix, you know. And I looked at districts that were beating the demographic odds. That is, they, their achievement levels were rising and their achievement gap closing at a rate faster than you'd expect, given who was living in those districts. And I found this very much the same pattern. Um, you didn't have a lot of gimmicks. You didn't have a ton of charter schools. You didn't have a lot of Teach for America teachers flying in to to to, to rescue the schools. And by the way, I have I, there are great charter schools. I'm not an anti-charter schools guy, but you can't educate all kids in charter schools. And you know, Teach for America teachers can make great contributions in some places. And Union City, because they're outsiders and because they're going to come and go, they really wouldn't be very helpful. But when I looked at all these places, I mean, some place you've never heard of, Aldine, Texas. Aldine, Texas, uh, which is Houston's poor cousin, there's more students than Boston, more students than Atlanta, more students than Washington, D.C. Um, it's got half as much money as Union, as Union City or any of the New Jersey urban districts have. Um, and they're doing well. And how are they doing well? It's because they're sticking to the basics. You know, as much preschool as they can afford, the kind of support for teachers, the common curriculum, the well-developed curriculum, the articulation across grades, um, the high expectation. I mean, the difference is they've got to make choices. They've got to, they've got to triage in ways that, that Union City and other New Jersey districts don't. You know, you, I hope you guys appreciate how remarkably well-off you are, certainly as compared to California. You know, I came and looked at those schools, and they're full of envy. Uh, just class sizes um, and resources available. But wherever I looked, whatever the circumstances were, um, when I found success stories, demonstrated success stories, I found the same kind of system building, taking a bunch of disparate schools of differing quality, where there are isolated pockets of excellence, and lots of mediocrity, and turning it around and building a school system, and and it's not that it's not that it hasn't happened elsewhere. Um, if places have been willing to take the time to be that patient, to build a culture of trust, so the community trusts the schools, the kids trust the teachers, the teachers trust the administrators. Um, that's something that's earned. That isn't something that just happens. People are willing to do that and to stick to it. You know, everything that, that we've been talking about is known to everybody, any educator with a pulse knows about these things, mm -hmm. knows that they're important. The trick is to do them, and doing them is a, is a job that you never give up on. The chapter on the central administration, on the school system, I call grunt work. It's a lot of just sticking to it. You know, the perspiration to inspiration ratio, that, you know, is... It's just right, 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. You take the great ideas and then you make them happen and you keep making them happen. And you drill down to the classroom level and to the individual kid level and to the, you know, all the way up to building the system. You know, you said a word before, and, and it goes back to when we were talking about the mayor and stability, is patience. Um, oh, yeah. And it's uh, and I, I don't mean just on a, a mayor's part or even the school board's part because a lot of times, as you alluded to, they're turned over because the community has lost patience. Is it something that we just need to, as long as we're heading in the right direction, because as you said, Union City was not an overnight success. It was, 
years in the making. Should we develop as a society a little bit more patience? Well, we're a very impatient society, right? You know, we now think that you know that, that you can make literature out of tweets, um, and you you know, everything, everything, <laughs> everything is. We're in the instant gratification um, world. I mean, just just think of how we're bombarded, you know, every second of the day with with the latest and and greatest stuff that comes along. I mean, there's more stuff produced and I'm I dare say there's more stuff produced on the internet, you know, in a day than there than there was stuff turned out in, in the in the US in the eighteenth century. Um and we just want more and we want it now. Um and schools just systems generally and schools don't work that way. Um and I bet businesses work that way. I was reading a piece in the New York Times um about the remarkable turnaround of Netflix. You may recall that Netflix really blew it when they proposed to split their subscriptions and to charge more for both parts, the the the, the real the real DVDs and the online DVDs, online movies, the streaming movies. And he said, How did you he was asked, How did you turn it around? He said, Slowly, patiently. We had to rebuild the confidence and the trust. We had to resist folks who said we should do something dramatic to make a splash. And here's somebody who's, you know, who's in the money-making business. His livelihood depends on this, and this is how he's gonna he's gonna operate. You know, is there any reason to believe that that same model of success, you know, and not the Michelle Reed, Joel Klein, you know, I'm here to to make it all happen and look how wonderful I am approach. Is there any reason to believe that Reed Hastings isn't isn't doesn't have the right answer for schools as well as for for industry and business? Um, we'll, we'll find out. Um, and you said, you said one other thing I should say, uh, and, um, money, cause money is probably at the heart of a lot of this too. Um, cause other school districts in New Jersey have, have gotten the same funding as Union City. It seems like Union City, because they had a plan for everything, had the plan for the money too and how to use their resources. Yes. Money, you know, money is wonderful. And I, you know, the poorest district in New Jersey in terms of funding is about has about twice as much money to spend as Aldean, Texas, and about twice as much money to spend as Long Beach, California. So, you know, money is the money is not New Jersey's problem. There are also many districts in New Jersey that have been amazingly good at squandering resources. Um, and I won't name names. I'll leave it to your audience to figure out who I might be talking about. The money enables you to do wonderful things, um, but it's not by itself the answer. It's not. It's not the you know magic potion. You've got to. You've got to have, as you say, you've got to have a plan for it. You've got to figure out you know what it takes to have quality education. You've got to figure out how it is that you provide coaching. For high school teachers, who can be pretty prickly about their own autonomy. How do you provide them with insights and support and counsel that they'll respect and accept? You know, how do you motivate kids to get excited enough about science so they're winning state science fairs? They've got a couple of Gates Millennium Scholars this year. That doesn't just happen. That that's commitment of a different kind. How do you make sure? To get a 90% graduation rate, you've got to work really closely with kids. Some kids who just have to work their tails off in order to barely scrape by that exam. So, yes, I'd, I'd say that I mean, when the stimulus money came, it's 
guys figured out that you need you can invest it in human capital. You know, there's there's technology in Union City. The the high school in particular is just a a marvel in terms of what's available to it. But you know, they, they certainly have invested in technology. But technology is also not an answer, not a not an answer, not the answer. It's just another part of a larger strategy that the district has constructed. It's been very thoughtful and very pragmatic in the way it's proceeded. It's looked to see what works, and if it works, they keep doing it and they keep tweaking it at the margin, and if it doesn't work, they stop doing it. Okay. Uh, we're coming to the end, and just uh, very briefly, uh, at least I took from your book, this is slow and steady, uh, and a lot of the things that they're doing there is not anything that's dramatically new in education. Is that correct? Um, you know, I, I thought about calling the book Tortoise Beats Hair. Mm-hmm. You know, the old East Fable. Yes. Patience, trust, steadiness, hard work. I mean, that's the that's the message. It's an old American message, and it's a message that, that works in, educa- in public education. Well, uh, David, I'd like to thank you uh, for joining me. Thank you, David Kerb. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ray. Okay. Uh, David's the author of Improbable Scholars. Uh, you can get it at Amazon.com. I would recommend uh, that you read it, uh, particularly for those of us in New Jersey, because I think we could. there's lessons there for all of us. Um, uh, I know I enjoyed it, and it's a a lot of times in education, you get a little negative on what's going on, and this is a positive that we can accomplish great things in education. And uh, and that brings us to the end of the show. And once again, thanks, David. My pleasure. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.